We'll be looking at Acts chapter 15, verses 22 to 35. But our reading for this morning will be from Psalm 133 and Ephesians chapter 4. Three verses of each passage, Old and New Testament. So if you are able to stand with us, would you please stand and prepare to read the Word of God together with me. Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3, and then Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 as well. And then we will pray and get into our study in Acts chapter 15. Psalm 133, verse 1. Let's read together and let us read aloud. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Shall we pray? Our Father, this morning we ask for the blessing and anointing of your Holy Spirit upon each and every person that is here today. Desiring, Lord, to not only receive your word, but to receive as well the wisdom and understanding and the wherewithal to live your word in these last days. We ask, Father, that you will grow us, Lord, in wisdom and grace that everything that we say and do as believers in Jesus Christ will always be to your honor and glory. When confronted with the needs of others who are without Christ, to be able to give an answer to them of the hope that lies within us, to be able to proclaim the gospel and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost, and to the hopeless, to the unloving and the unlovely. Father, may you raise them up to know you and help us, Lord, to be a help to them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You all may be seated. Just to kind of get us caught up with what we've been studying over the last few weeks in the book of Acts chapter 15 because our focus has been so much upon a conflict that arose in the church and the resolution that came about because of that conflict. A controversy had sprung up in the early church as the gospel of Jesus Christ had gone beyond Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and was now extending to the uttermost parts of the earth. More and more Gentiles were being saved by the preaching of the truth of the gospel. And this controversy led to a great conflict within the church with a group of believing Jews who felt that the only way for the Gentiles or for the Gentile or a Gentile to be saved was to be circumcised and to become a Jew. So after much discussion, dissension, and debate took place in Antioch of Syria, where Barnabas and Paul previously had reported all that God had done with them in opening the door of faith to the Gentiles. They, along with others, were sent by the church in Antioch to Jerusalem so that the apostles and the elders there could consider the matter. So in response to the conflicting problem, the Jerusalem church came together And after much discussion, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James playing a prominent role by their testimonies, as we saw last time, they agreed that salvation comes only by believing in Jesus Christ, and that Jews and Gentiles are saved by grace and not by the keeping 
of the law. Now certain concessions were offered for the sake of peace and unity, so that if the decision is that one does not have to be Jewish to be a Christian, it must also be declared that one does not need to forsake the law of Moses to be a Christian. A blessing for all involved, the Jew and the Gentile. And so the Gentiles were encouraged, the Gentile believers were encouraged to do four things. To abstain from things polluted by idols. To abstain from sexual immorality. To abstain from things strangled. And to abstain from blood. Now, we talked about this last time that a couple of those were commands and the others were concessions. In reality, and we'll see here in just a matter, their adherence to these commands and these concessions was not a matter of ceremonial observance. As if the Jerusalem church was saying to the Gentiles, well, you have to do these ceremonially. So it wasn't a matter of ceremonial observance, but they wanted them to take these as ethical and moral issues, as Paul would later teach. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, a very simple statement, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Well, idolatry is no good for either Jew or Gentile, and really should be offensive to both. Earlier on, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, in dealing with the issues of food and, and the stomach and what goes into a person and whatnot. But very simply, Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So, in relating this, and, in, and then of course there are a lot of other different passages. We mentioned Romans chapter 14 and 15, where Paul talks about how we are to be sensitive to the weak and, and those who may hold on to certain things that we don't see. If it's a peripheral matter, then let's not be offensive. So let's review then this whole picture here before we move on into the next part of the text. Controversy led to conflict, which led to consideration of the matter, which then led to commands and concessions for the sake of compromise, for peace and unity. It is at this point that we come to our text, which will now emphasize the necessity of clearly communicating this message. And now, as we see, the council confirms the decision. I don't know about you, but there were a lot of C's there that I had to throw out at you to try to remember what we've been studying over the last few weeks. So if you heard that, fine. If you were sitting there wondering why uh, I mentioned all those words, I'll get the tape or CD and I'm not going to go over them again. It's all review. But we reach verse 22 now. And we're told that it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church. I know that many of you like to mark your Bibles. If you, if you do that, then if you will underline with the whole church, that is very significant here that we see this mentioned. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, so his name would be Judas Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. It was greatly significant that the whole church was permitted to express itself on this most crucial theological issue and taking a stand on the truth. Now, I didn't say that they were permitted to give their opinions about it and vote upon it. That wasn't the issue that they were to, uh, to partake in, in the sense of, well, let's, let's see, well, how, how do you all vote? That's not what's happening here. But the very fact that the whole church was concerned in this whole matter and was allowed to express this in, the, in, its, in its pleasing of, of, the, of the decision that came about. Add to that thought that much of the credit also for this agreement that is taking place over this very issue goes to some of those certain men that we read about back in Acts 15 verse 1. And I say some of them, not all of them, but some of, of some of them who allowed themselves to be convinced by the evidence from the Scriptures and by the confirmation of the Holy Spirit that indeed the Gentiles were not to be pushed into becoming Jews before they became 
Christians. So it's a good thing to note that some of them had a teachable spirit. We ourselves in the church are always to remain teachable as long as we're dealing with God's Word and the Holy Spirit teaching us. Not in giving opinion as to what we think something says or maybe even as some cults do try to take certain passages of Scripture out of context and try to push that on as some kind of a doctrinal issue. So they had a teachable spirit. In other words, some of those legalists, some of those Judaizers, as we've called them, came to realize, you know, the Scripture says it. The apostles have, have given testimony of it. The Holy Spirit has given testimony of it. We need, to, we need to trust this. And then consider that what they did in sending chosen men of their own company with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch was also a very wise move to send these two men who are from the Jerusalem church who would in fact be Jewish believers in Jesus Christ and not only that but two of the leading Jerusalem brethren to be sent this was a very wise thing because they're being sent to authenticate the decision to the Gentile churches and this would give weight to the news and make sure they was fully understood that it was an official decision now remember the church is still young not all of the New Testament is written, of course, at this time. As a matter of fact, Paul has, 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 has written the, uh, uh, the letter to the Galatian churches already. And so here is uh, just the very beginnings of, of setting in place the doctrines of the church. But this ought to remind us to always clearly communicate. To always clearly communicate. Never leave room for misunderstanding. We should always take the extra step to make sure everything is communicated correctly and clearly understood. Too often, some things are miscommunicated. Too often things are communicated so quickly, not giving people a chance to hear or to listen carefully to what's being said, especially in, in the areas of doctrine. And I think that this is one reason why the church today is going through a lot of struggles, because there's so many voices out there, so many people who say, well, you know, I got this from the Bible, and you wonder, well, where did you get it, and how do you tie it into everything else that's in the Scriptures, because everything has to be uh, supported by the Word itself. So everything has to be clearly communicated. We take very uh, important steps in teaching the Word of God here to make sure that we cover every step available to bring clear understanding to what the Word of God says. So now the two that were chosen to accompany Paul and Barnabas, who were Judas and Silas, are described as leading men. As, ma as a matter of fact, the King James Version says they were chief men among the brethren, which means that they were elders in the church in Jerusalem. And they each also represented the two wings of the Jerusalem church, which were the Judeans, who were actually the citizens of Israel or of Judea, as well as the Hellenists who had come in, who were Jews from all the other various regions, who had come into Jerusalem and were now a part of the church, who had received the Lord, of course, uh, at, at the time of Pentecost, at the time when Peter was preaching the gospel and the apostles were, were preaching the gospel to their Jewish brethren. So the Hellenists were a part of this wing of the Jerusalem church. And we know this from the names of these two men. Judas, of course, being a, a, a Judean or an Israelite, and, and, a, and a, a Silas, who we will also know in the scriptures as Silvanus, uh, being a Hellenist. So both wings are, are represented in going to Antioch with this decision. And by the way, Silas will later become a co-worker with Paul, on the mission field. And then we're told in verse 23 and following these things. Verse 23 says, They wrote this letter by them. The apostles, and here's the letter, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch. And you'll notice that they're writing to brothers. So now this is a significant statement being made. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. One word, but very powerful in the Greek. Greetings. Since we have heard that some, of, uh, some who went out from us have troubled you with words. Well, stop there for a moment and think. 
Can we be troubled by words? We, we all grew up with that, that uh, little saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. A lot of people are hurt by words, especially by lies. In this particular case, men came from Jerusalem to Antioch and without authority were saying, you know, you Gentiles need to be circumcised if you really want to be a Christian. You have to be a good Jew before you're, before you're a Christian. Well, that uh, troubled these Gentiles who were told that they had come to Christ by faith. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and what is this now? This doctrine. So that's the first thing that, that the apostles deal with. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law. By the way, that phrase is so important. Some of you may have a, a, a modern translation that doesn't have that phrase in the text. It, it needs to be there. That's, that's why it's there in the King James. It's there in the New King James. You must be certain. Well, that's the whole issue. How do you take the whole issue out of a passage and, and make any sense of what they're saying to the church? The passage is there. You must be circumcised and keep the law. That was the problem. So they're dealing with the issue, the conflict. He says, to whom we gave no such commandment. We didn't tell them to tell you these things. We didn't send them to tell you these things. We didn't authorize them to tell you anything, especially these things. So, that's the first statement. The second statement now in verse 25 says, It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. You'll notice, again, the respect given to Barnabas and Paul by the Jerusalem church. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. In other words, we have a letter, but they're going to tell you, they're going to give you testimony of what we've gone through to take this particular stand. Verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. And then they close with a word very similar to the greeting, but the same farewell. Farewell. Well, these were the formalities. These were the formalities that needed to be observed before the fellowship could be enjoyed by all, Jew and Gentile, one with the other. And yet there is this encouraging warmth throughout this letter. Short letter as it is. Nonetheless, we see the warmth to our brethren who are the Gentiles in Antioch. Greetings. While the letter would be signed, first of all, by the apostles and elders of the Jerusalem church, to signify that it came from the highest authority there, and so that it should lay to rest any further dispute. This, this question should not come up again. And if it does, here's the letter from the apostles in Jerusalem. The letter was addressed to the churches where Jews and Gentiles mixed together in the tension of the debate. This being, of course, in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. But there is a logical extension. By logical extension, it would have been passed on to the churches in Galatia where Paul and Barnabas had been. Where the, where the Gentiles had come to faith in Christ. And where many Jews had gone. Remember, Paul, again, we, we talked about this last time in, in the book of in book of Galatians. How he even had to confront Peter because of things that Peter was doing and things that Peter wasn't doing as far as the Gentiles were concerned. So that letter would have found its way to every church where the Gentiles and Jews were in this tension of this debate. Again, the word of greeting was warm. Kairain is the word that is used for the word greeting. Kaido, it comes from the word kaido in the, in the Greek, which, which literally means we bid you to rejoice. And indeed, the Gentile churches had much to rejoice about here. I mean, once and for all, the divisive issue of circumcision was settled. 
And so they're telling them in this letter, rejoice. This is a settled issue. And after this poignant greeting, the first things the apostles did was carefully isolate the false teachers as those who had not been sent. And to tell them we had no part in that legalistic teaching. They're isolating these things. You know, sometimes we think, well, I mean, we're all supposed to be Christians. We all ought to have, you know, love for one another. And so even these guys came. They might have been a little bit off the mark. But, you know, we need to, we need to love them and you know, respect uh, what they stand on. Well, well, they couldn't have been respect because all there was was tension. And there comes a time when grace must give way to truth. There comes a time when grace must give way to truth. We can't hold hands with everybody. Now please understand what I'm saying. Please listen carefully. So don't start drawing, you know, all ideas, but that's one statement. That we can't hold hands with everybody. Listen carefully. The idea that love embraces everything is wrong. Now, listen to me. Is someone looking at me like, what you talking about? You just hold on here and listen to what I'm saying. The idea that love embraces everything is wrong. Now, what is true is that love does reach out to everyone. The love of God reaches out to everyone. There's no doubt about that. But love does not embrace error. And that's my point here. Love does not embrace error. Okay? False and divisive teaching must be confronted. False and divisive teaching must be confronted. Teaching that is heretical, teaching that is not based in the Word of God, has to be confronted. I'm not telling you this. Jesus will tell you this. In Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. You don't embrace it, you throw it away. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So Jesus says, you have to confront false teaching. But not only Jesus, but Paul. Paul, by the way, Paul, the great writer of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the very chapter on love, writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 12 through 15. And by the way, as he's writing this, so you'll understand, he's, he's actually speaking of, uh, of those who would come along to try to gain opportunity by, by saying, uh, you know, that they, uh, uh, they come along with the same ideas as Paul. He says, what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. Notice of what they're boasting in. But he says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if he ministers also, or if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to to their works. So, you know, here there are going to be false teachers. They're going, to, they're going to appear right or righteous. But he says you've got to check these things out. Peter does the same thing. Peter in 2 Peter 2 verses 1 through 3 he says, But there are, were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in uh, destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. If we'll stop there for just a moment, that's happening in the church today. It's happening in the church, what's called the evangelical church today, of people who are blaspheming the way of truth 
by saying, you know, we, we, we need to get off of this old-fashioned thing about studying the Bible and reading the Bible, acting as if you all are such experts in the Bible. Who knows what the Bible really has to say? Let's just have conversations. Let's just talk about these things, you know. Or let's just go back to certain experiential things. Let's light a whole bunch of candles. Let's sit around and meditate and, and meditate on, on our navels or something. And the way of truth is being blasphemed in that manner. And Paul says, By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words for a long time. Their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. In other words, there will be judgment eventually. And then 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-6, through 6, John, the apostle who is called the apostle of love, writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. There was a, there was a Gnostic heresy at that time where some people believe that Jesus really didn't come in the flesh, but he came as some kind of a phantom spirit. And, you know, he could walk and you could see him and all of that, but, you know, he didn't leave footprints, you know, like everybody else. And, and so he's just saying, listen, he came in the flesh. And then he says, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard has, uh, was coming and, and is now ready in the world. Already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore they speak as of the world, and, they, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So even today, when, when we have people saying, you know, we're not going to study the Bible anymore because, you know, that just seems to be a waste of time and whatnot, but let's just have a nice spiritual experience together. And then when you go, do whichever you want, you know, live however you want, whatever. Well, that goes against what, Paul, what John says when he says, we're of God, he who knows God hears us. We come with the authority to teach the Word of God. We come not teaching it ourselves, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, a lot of things are being missed in this emerging church movement that is going on today. Well, getting back to our text, the apostles and the elders in verses 25 through 27 would then write concerning those who are now being sent. So they've written about those they didn't send. Now they're writing about those who are being sent to undo the damage that had been done. And these come fully accredited. Look at verses 25 through 27. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. I've spoken of them already and what they were going to do. But these men were spoken of warmly again, as well as men who had given up their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, because the word risk there, where it says men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, literally means that they had given up their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. They had given up their lives. In other words, their lives were no longer precious to themselves. Now their lives belong to Jesus. And no matter what would happen to them, they belong to the Lord. And they had risked their lives in this way and in this manner. It brings to mind something of the words of Jesus himself. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and following, he says, When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me. Listen to what Jesus says. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The very action of taking up the cross is to say you're taking up that symbol of death and of dying to self. And follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels, you'll notice, that's why I chose this passage in, in, in Mark. Not only just what he, who he is, but what he says. 
Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What profit is there? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Notice, not just ashamed of Christ, but ashamed of Christ and his words. In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words. I think it is a shameful thing that some people are saying today. Put aside the word of God. We don't need to come back to the word of God. We don't even understand what it says. Well, you know, if you prayed, if you studied, if you read, you'd understand that there is life in God's word. There's life in the gospel. Jesus himself said, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. How can, we, how can we go around saying these lies that there is no life in the Word of God? But that is what is being taught today. I, I've got to stop here. And I, I, I was looking at some of the things that some of these emerging church leaders were saying. And I had to pull this thing out here because I just didn't want to be saying this to you and not have some substance behind it. Tim McMahon, who works with Dave Hunt, the Berean coal ministry. He writes, Satan's seduction of Eve began subtly, yea, hath God said. It's a confusion tactic, setting her up to believe his lie and reject what God had said. The serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. That was his punchline to destroy the human race. Eve fell for it, Adam went along. One finds a striking similar approach in the writings of the emerging church leaders in regard to destroying faith in the gospel. Brian McLaren, being one of the leaders of the emerging church, leads with doubts about what God had said. The church latched on to that old doctrine of original sin like a dog to a stick. Before you knew it, the whole gospel got twisted around. Instead of being God's big message of saving love for the whole world, the gospel became a little bit of secret information on how to solve the pesky legal problem of original sin. He also says elsewhere, I don't Think we've got the gospel right yet? What does it mean to be saved? None of us have arrived at orthodoxy. Isn't that interesting? This is supposedly a theologian, been around a long time as a pastor. What is he leading his, where is he leading his people? A British emerging church leader delivers the punchline that unabashedly rejects the essential gospel belief that Christ paid the full penalty for the sins of mankind necessary to satisfy divine justice. Incredibly, he condemns that doctrine as a form of cosmic child abuse and a twisted version of events, and I quote, twisted version of events, morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. This is where these emerging Pied Pipers wittingly or unwittingly are seductively leading our youth. What happened to God's word, the lives of these supposed ministers of the gospel? We can't call a minister to the gospel anymore because they don't believe it. I wish I could go on and on. As I see what Jesus says here, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed. When he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Why is it that the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Romans, in Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. What is so hard to understand about that? And I'm not ashamed of that gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God. We have the power of God with us. We carry it with us. I hope you bring your Bibles with you. I hope you take them. I hope you read them. I hope you're wearing them out. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. To all who believe. To the Jew first and also for the Greek. Where are we going today in the church of Jesus Christ? And the sad thing is, our young people in, in many churches, in many cases, don't have Bible studies, they have talks, they spend a lot of time doing all kinds of other activities, nothing wrong with activities, but what about the Word of God? 
What about teaching them about the love of Christ? What about teaching them about salvation in Jesus Christ? Where has that gone? I tell you, we're living in the last days. Jesus said it was going to be this way. We ought to have believed Him. We ought to believe Him still. Well, I can spend a lot of time on that, but let's move on. The last section of this letter gives both a word of confidence and a word of caution, much of which we have already studied previously. Let's go to verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. We dealt with this last week. We're not going to spend a lot of time with that today. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Who made the decision at the Jerusalem Council? Listen carefully. Who made the decision? For them to write, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, makes it clear that the decision belonged to the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. You see, it wasn't a vote. It wasn't James taking the lead and saying, you know, I think maybe we ought to go ahead and, and, and write it this way. You know, as much as we're thankful for what the founding fathers of our country did in writing the Declaration of Independence and the Articles of the Constitution and whatnot, you know, when they did, they, they talked about it, debated over certain things and, and issues and came up with these particular documents. But here, what the apostles are saying is, we prayed, the Holy Spirit said, this is good, good to us. If, he's good, if it's good with Him, we'll take what He says. And that's the way it needs to be. And so... The decision comes from God. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And the great thing is, the issue was settled at the very infancy of Christianity and for all time. It was settled then. Now, unless you just want to go back to that kind of legalistic thinking, as far as I can tell over the last 2,000 years, no one's had to be circumcised to be a Christian. Because the issue was settled then in the Jerusalem church for the church as a whole. And the formalities have now been observed. These were important things to lay clear for the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church to be one and in agreement with each other and in fellowship. So the formalities have been observed and now the fellowship could begin and be all the sweeter for them. Let's look at verses 30 to 33. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter and when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. And now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. What a beautiful picture. You know, now there's fellowship. Now there's things going on. But you have to consider that initial waiting for this letter. I mean, you know, what we just read, I mean, there were warm feelings, there were wondrous fellowship as Barnabas and those uh, with him lived up to, to Barnabas' name, by the way, son of encouragement. They were all encouraging the church in Antioch. And we can imagine there must have been an anxious time for the Gentiles in Antioch awaiting the response. You know, you kind of have to figure, wow, it, it, it took a long time for Paul and Barnabas to leave Antioch to get to Jerusalem. It didn't take days, probably weeks, maybe a month or so. But, but in any event, it took a long time for them to reach Jerusalem. I mean, they didn't have the transit systems that we have today to get around. So there was waiting going on. We've sent them off. We, we, we trust that God is going to speak to their hearts in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, they're meeting, they're, you know, and, and they could have been there for a few days, if not weeks as well. But once everything was settled, the fellowship was now uh, bonding, uh, or, uh, bonding well with, with, with them from the church in Antioch. Now the trip comes back. But all along, the church in Antioch is waiting. What are they thinking? I mean, the hours and the days had to drag, wondering if the news would end up being bad. Now let's face it. A lot of times, when we're waiting for some kind of news, the first thought is, you know, I hope it's good, but it could be bad. It could be bad news. You go to a doctor, you know, the doctor says, well, we're going to take some tests. And we'll give you the re results here pretty soon. Well, hurry up, okay? We want the results right then and there. And the first thing we think is, well, you know, it's taking too long. It's probably bad news. So can you imagine? They're thinking, well, they're, they're good. We are, we're praying, we're hoping, we're waiting. But it could be bad news. That's the way we are. We're human. And you all heard the question, right? What do you want first, the good news or the bad news? What is it you always want to hear first? Oh, okay, give us the bad news. 
They're living and they're thinking there's some bad news coming along. We haven't heard anything. So that's the way it seems. Hope and despair usually battle for the victory in such cases. It's always going on. And they had to have been so relieved then to see that the principle of grace had been defended, safeguarded, and protected. In other words, they were saved and right with God after all. And I could just imagine, you know, as they're waiting and they say, Hey, here comes Barnabas and, and Paul and a couple of other guys are coming. And, and, and you know, what would they be looking for? Are they smiling? Are they sad? Are they, are they droopy or, or what? You know, I don't think that Paul was a practical joker. I'm, I'm sure that he didn't say, listen, before we turn the corner, why don't we all look real sad and make them think that we're, we don't have good news. Then we'll say, hey, look, we got good news, you know, and really make them feel bad. But anyway, I, I'm sure Paul wasn't that way. I'm sure that the first thing he wanted to do was get to that church and tell them, hey, listen, it's settled. The issue is settled. And you see, that brings that, that wonderful, wonderful good news. The principle of grace was defended. The principle of grace was safeguarded and protected. And so, think of how wonderful it would be to hear the words of Jesus again now. The words of Jesus in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, Jew or Gentile, no one comes to the Father except through me. Did you know that that was there all along? If they had had the words of Jesus and, and known the words of Jesus, couldn't they see what he was saying? All along he says, no one, Jew or Gentile, comes to the Father except through me. And, Tim, and Paul, uh, writing to Timothy later on in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 7, would carry this banner of grace with him. He says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. All men. What does that mean? Jew and Gentile. All men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, who's all, Jew and Gentile, to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Me, a good little Jew, but a teacher of the Gentiles, Jew and Gentile, for all men. Ransom for all to be saved. The principle of grace. And then Judas and Silas did more than just confirm the contents of the letter. That's why they went, but they did more than that. They, I mean, they stayed there in Antioch for a time to exhort and to encourage and to strengthen the church. They were also called prophets, and so they were there not so much forthtelling, but, 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 but just encouraging or not foretelling, but foretelling, encouraging the church there, exhorting the church to trust in the Lord. I mean, it would be a new and exciting ministry for them, uh, for, among, uh, for them among the Gentile brethren. I mean, you know, they, they'd been in the Jerusalem church for so long, there really weren't any Gentiles per se in that church. But now their eyes are open to what God is doing on a grander scale. And so they're excited to be among they're Gentile brethren. But then in verses 34 and 35 it says, However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. So Judas would go back eventually to Jerusalem. Silas would stay. And we know why. Verse 35, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. An exciting thing, you'll notice that it isn't just Paul and Barnabas, but others are teaching as well. So the church is growing in wisdom and knowledge, and others are going out and, and teaching God's Word. Judas would, would return to Jerusalem, but Silas would remain for future ministry with Paul. But the important thing to note at the end of the passage is that the church in Antioch was now back on track. It was now back on track. They got back to the spiritual business of the church. We know from earlier studies that the leaders in Antioch prayed and fasted over directions and, and decisions. And because of this, they were back on the same page with regard to doctrine, especially the doctrine of salvation. And as a church now, they truly had a new lease on life. And I'll tell you this, that, that churches need to go through this from time to time. They need to go through these times of refreshing, of, 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 
revitalizing, you know, the ministry overall. But it truly begins with individuals in the church having revival in their hearts with God. All of us here can fall into routines, we fall into ruts, and eventually we're just going along in the motions of Christianity, but not seeing or sensing the real strength of that, which is that personal relationship with Christ, that personal uh, relationship by being filled with the Holy Spirit, with God. I think of uh, A.W. Tozer's book, uh, Rotter Revival. It's a great, great book if you can find it. You can in bookstores. Rut Rotter Revival. He writes about how we all oftentimes as Christians fall into certain routines in the church. Especially if we're in the, the ministry of any kind. But fall into these routines and you go over and over the same ground. And, and then eventually, you, you know, the routine becomes a rut. And so, you know, it's just kind of, uh, you know, it almost can do it, you know, with a blindfold, you know, the ministry. But then, you know, that rut leads to a rot in the, in the ministry itself. So we, we need personal revival. We need to spend time alone with God. We need to spend time alone with His Word, with an open Bible, with a pad, with a pen, a, a turned off phone, a, a, an unplugged door, you know, bell or whatever. But find a place to be alone with God and just be again in, in, in that wonderful fellowship with the Lord. I mean, church revivals are fine, I'm sure, but, but you know what? It's that personal revival. It's that you today spending that time with God, spending that time with Jesus and saying, Lord, speak to my heart. Build me up again. I I just need that refreshing. We need that refreshing with the Lord. And it's a wonderful thing to know that um, a church can get back on track when the people are back on track with the Lord. Well, lastly, I want to close with the passage from Ephesians, except a different part of Ephesians 4. Because it does deal with unity and, it, and, it, and it, it does deal with all of us in the church doing our part. Paul says in Ephesians 4.11, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Today, as every Sunday is, or Saturday night, or Wednesday night, is an equipping day. We equip you with the Word of God, teach you God's Word. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, your work in the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, in other words, for the building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. If there were winds of doctrine then, there are winds of doctrine today. By the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, notice. Speak the truth in love. May grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Every one of us has a part. Every one of us is to do his share. Causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself. In love. That is what was now once again happening in the Antioch church, I'm sure in the Jerusalem church, in the churches in Cilicia, the churches in Galatia, now that they realized that the issue of salvation was settled. Faith in Christ. We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Let me leave you with a few questions. What happens when we learn, as the churches did then? What happens when we learn the art of loving compromise? Because that is what we saw between Jerusalem and Antioch. Well, first of all, we learn to have our priorities in order. We learn to have our priorities in order to know when to fight for what's really important in the church. You see... Some people like to fight in the church over things that don't really matter. And listen again. We need to have our priorities in order to know when to fight for what's really important. It is wasteful. It is wasteful and it is sinful to follow someone 
in the church who is fighting to get his or her own way on some minor issue that isn't worth fighting about. It is wasteful and it is sinful. And I would just suggest for each and every one of you to read 1 Corinthians 13 today and realize what it says there about the love of Christ in our lives. The agape love of Jesus Christ. How will our decisions affect the united witness of the church to the lost? There are people out in the world today that need to know Jesus Christ. How will our decision in these matters, in, in growing the church properly and growing together as one, how will it build up the body of Christ with the lost? And so these are questions that we need to ponder. But the door was opened. The door was open for all to come to Christ. There were some who were trying to hinder that. But the door was open. You see, we need to keep it open. How do we keep the door open for people to come to Christ? We do so with the truth of the gospel. We do it with the truth of the gospel. Now that's been a phrase that we've been talking about, we've been, we've been sharing over the last few weeks. The truth of the gospel. The truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came from glory, took on the appearance of men, took on flesh and became a man. He lived, he died, he took in his death our sins on the cross, he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, and on the third day he rose again from the dead, the truth of the gospel. We are affected by that truth. We are here today, many of us, because of the truth of the gospel. It's that important, as we stated the last two weeks. It's that important for us to stand on the truth of what Jesus Christ is all about for the sake of fellowship now and for the sake of winning the lost to Jesus Christ. Let's pray.